This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Good morning and welcome to Discam Medical Monday, your weekly show where we learn so much about medicine and how it applies to our community and just people you and me on the street. Um, this is Dr. Daniel Israel. I'm your host for this morning. And I'm joined today by a very special guest, special to me on a personal level, but also special to our community. And that is Dr. Dean Lutron, who joins us from Ranana in Israel. Um, Dean is, has been living in Israel for the last, I think, about just under two months or so, or somewhere around there. Welcome to the show, Dean. Dean um, trained at um, Wits University. I actually I say he's, he's special to me personally because I've known him for a lot of my life, way before he was even a doctor. And Dean was always passionate about becoming a doctor. I even once once asked him if he, and I will join this again later in the show, but if, if, if he had a choice one day of living the Jewish ideal of living in Israel or becoming a specialist, a doctor, what he would do. And he said that medicine was his calling and particularly surgery. And now, thankfully, he's been able to do both. So it's great to have him on the show. Dean was the well, one of the, the surgeons in charge of the colorectal unit at Donald Gordon Medical Center, which is known to all of us. He trained initially at Wits University. He did his surgical registrarship through the Wits circuit and then went on to become a fellow and become a specialist in colorectal surgery, um, where he has really, for many of us in the community, know him both by name or personally. And he has literally been involved in the management of so many people in terms of gut health and wellness and screening and cancer treatment and other pathology treatments and um, has really made a difference to so many lives. So it's it's wonderful to have you on the show, Dean, and welcome from Ranana. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, Dan. Yes, we're still uh, finding our feet here. And uh, really, I really appreciate the invites and thanks for the kind words. And uh, I know what a great job you've done through Corona in Joburg, keeping everyone's heads straight and and balanced. Um, so well done to you for that. Um, so yeah, happy to get going. Great. So I, I thought what would be nice for a change and maybe different to some of the other formats that I've taken with the show is to just talk a little bit about you at the beginning and, and ask you a few things. And then we'll get on to today's very important topic, which is I'd like to focus primarily on colon and rect- colorectal cancers and their screening and prevention and treatment. But just before that, a little, a little bit of, of personal stuff. Did you always know you wanted to become a doctor? So my, my, my grandmother tells me that since I was four years old, I spoke about becoming a doctor. Um, so I always wanted to become a doctor um, and uh, then uh, went to medical school and wanted to become a surgeon and actually uh, started doing surgery with the idea of doing pediatric surgery. Um, that was something I always thought I wanted to do. And the second time I rotated, you know, you do rotations. You go from discipline to discipline. You spend time in pediatrics and trauma and breast surgery and oncology and everything. And the second time I rotated through pediatric surgery was when my first daughter was born. And having this healthy baby at home and looking after these very sick children in hospital and doing all these big operations of them, I realized I didn't have it in me um, emotionally and and just it was gut-wrenching. 
And I actually, when I rotated through adult gastroenterology, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. I worked with very nice people. The head of the unit at the, at the time and still is uh, Professor Damon Bezos, who was a wonderful guy to work with and work for and taught me a lot. And I enjoyed the discipline. And actually, from a cancer point of view, I, for want of a better word, enjoyed looking after colorectal cancer because I found the surgery enjoyable but more important than that, the outcomes were good. In other words, if you become a doctor to help people, it's nice to be able to treat a disease that is treatable. And, you know, as many diseases, we, we don't really make a huge difference to the patients. But for this gut stuff, we did make a difference and do make a difference. So for me, it felt very personally rewarding. Which I remember you telling me years ago, and I... I, I... Reminisce back to a time when I actually worked under you as an intern in Dr. B's, Prof. Bezos's unit. And I remember Dean telling me about the, the, the big difference that, that they were making in people's lives. And, and so I just, so interesting to think of how I look at someone like Dr. Lutron and I see how, how, how Dean, you started, you were a madrich through one of our, the youth movements in Johannesburg in South Africa. You, that's how you were interested in pediatrics. I know that Unfortunately, you lost your mom to cancer as when you were in, in your teenage years. And then how you have this, developed this passion for medicine. And it's so interesting to see how these life experiences have created someone who, well, you can't, can't put aside his absolute dedication to, to medicine, but because that's what's really caused it. But really how this um, mixing of experiences has made him um, what he has been for us today. So we're going to take a quick break. And straight after the break, we're going to be coming back to discussing our topic of colorectal surgery. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm talking to Dr. Dean Lutron, who joins us all the way live from Ranana, and we're a surgical gastroenterologist who has recently moved to Israel, been involved at the Donald Gordon Medical Center here for many years as a specialist, and is now starting his career or carrying on his career again in Israel in Ranana. And today we're focusing on colon cancer or colorectal cancer. Now, as a general practitioner, often asked the question by patients as to someone who's well and who doesn't have you know anything about colorectal cancer, should this be something they're worried about? So to, 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 to go into this topic, I think what we should start off by doing is just asking Dean, what is colorectal cancer? How common is it? And, you know, should, should this be something that's looked at as a, if you're not someone who has a specific history with it or, 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 um, is this only for special patients, so to speak? Colorectal cancer is a common cancer worldwide. And in the Western world is probably one of the, one of the top, top five, maybe top three causes of cancer related death amongst men and women in the Western world. We don't really know what causes colorectal cancer. There's a very small group of patients that have got hereditary causes. In other words, they've inherited genes from their parents or they had some sort of genetic mutation as a baby, you know, in utero that puts them at risk. But most people, actually, we don't know why they get it. Now, the colon cells are constantly dividing, just like the skin on your, on your body. You have old cells that are dying and falling off and the, the colon is constantly being rejuvenated new cells are growing. And this is, you know, perhaps billions of cells uh, undergoing replenishment every every day or every few days. And every now and then, um, a photocopying error happens in a gene. And 
sometimes due to bad luck, that error happens in a cell such that the cell starts growing over exuberantly. Now, it doesn't go from a normal lining to a full-blown cancer. It's a, it's a process. So you have a normal lining that acquires one minor change, that it grows a bit like, you know, like I suppose you get a mole on your face that looks a bit bad. It's not cancer, but it looks a bit nasty. And then that mole, or, or that, what we call it, we call it a polyp in the colon, that, that polyp undergoes further changes and eventually it becomes a full-blown cancer and becomes more and more aggressive. Now, there's a lot of stuff around genes and especially, you know, Ashkenazi Jews. And we think probably Ashkenazi Jews are at higher risk. But there's a lot of stuff about diet and exercise and other risk factors about colorectal cancer. And and the truth is we do have this, this saying, you are what you, you eat. And we certainly do think that a bad diet um, – may have an impact to colorectal cancer. Now, what do we mean by bad diet? So interestingly, the actual scientific evidence around diets and colorectal cancer is not as robust as we would like it to be. But we certainly believe that, you know, fruits and vegetables and fiber and that sort of stuff may reduce the risk of colorectal cancer. And smoked meats specifically, well, like bride meats, and maybe alcohol or risk factors. But there isn't this clear correlation between risk factors and colorectal cancer in the same way that there is between, I don't know, sun exposure and skin cancer or cigarette exposure and lung cancer. So a lot of people who get colorectal cancer actually haven't done anything wrong. They haven't made bad lifestyle choices it's more of a matter of bad luck or what we don't yet understand. But it's not like you say, look, I live healthy, I eat well, I do everything well, therefore I'm not at risk. It's not like that with colorectal cancer. The risk factors I find very interesting. And compared to other, as, as you rightly say, as compared to other cancers, we certainly know that with skin cancer, various cancers, your, your lifestyle makes a big difference. We know smoking, for example, is one of the biggest um, risk factors for a lot of cancers. The risk factors that you've spoken about, let's just say certain foods, and I think particularly smoking and alcohol, um, are they in someone who has a history of, of, of colon cancer in their family, which I would then assume puts them at more risk of colorectal cancer? Do these lifestyle um, factors make a big difference at that point? So if you know that you've got a line of it in your family, you know, is there a point in trying to change these lifestyle issues vis-a-vis colorectal cancer? Obviously, the answer to that is yes. But from a, the way we feel, but from a purely scientific point of view, the evidence that we have thus far isn't as strong as we would like it to be. And in my own practice and in my own experience, I have seen so many people with colorectal cancer who really live clean lives. They eat well, they exercise, they do all the right things. But one of the important things which I always tell my and it's just why these things happen is just, it's just terrible and a little bit beyond it. But what I say to the patients is the fact that you've lived so well and cleanly and healthily is that now that you have a cancer, your prognosis is much better than someone who hasn't. So yes, all those things are relevant. But what, why I'm stressing this point is that firstly, 
if someone gets colorectal cancer, it doesn't necessarily mean they haven't been, you know, leading a wholesome lifestyle because, you know, many people are. And secondly, um, not to be lulled into a sense of complacency that just because you are living um, a healthy lifestyle, that your risk for colorectal cancer is so low that you don't need to worry. And there really is something in the air, in the water, that we don't yet have our finger on that puts people at risk. So I think that brings us to a very important point here, and that is if we know that lifestyle doesn't make such a measurable difference to the incidence of colorectal cancer, we certainly know that it's important for us to try and check even healthy people to see if they are indeed at a precancerous stage or at a risk stage. Now, we all know that we go to our doctors and we say to them, do I need a scope? We all know that co- that scoping our gastroenterologists, whether it's surgical gastros or medical gastros, Dr. Lutron, who's with us today, is a surgical gastro, but um, that scoping is a way of surveilling the, the gut, you know, in a healthy person and perhaps detecting a precancerous disease. So I think just before we take a break, Dean, if you could just tell us what the guidelines are about who should be scoped just by definition. And then after the break, we can talk about whether it's worth it, what are the exceptions, how do we know, etc. So I won't talk about what we, how we do the screening now, exactly what tools we use. But the basic principle is everyone should start screening from age 45 or from 10 years before diagnosis of a first-degree relative. So if someone's mother or father or, or sibling had colorectal cancer at 40, they should start at 30. So that's the starting age is generally for most people at 45. And the ending age? So that's a very interesting question. The Most of the guidelines suggest ending at age 75, that if you've had nothing up to then, you're probably not going to get anything. And the other issue is is that certain forms of screening, particularly colonoscopy, carry with them a risk. Um, you know, you could you could have a complication related to the procedure. So having the procedure too old may put you at risk. So you could go beyond 75 to do it, but the, the official guideline cutoff is at 75. Great. We're going to take a break here. And join Dr. Lutron soon after this. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. This is Dr. Daniel Israel. I'm speaking to Dr. Dean Lutron from Ranana, who joins us, a special guest with us today, who is a surgical gastroenterologist, and he's talking to us all about colorectal cancer. Um, when do you need a scope? Is it preventable? How do we treat it? This is something would most of us know someone who's been affected by, and it's important for the man on the ground who can't see the inside of his gut to understand how he needs to look after that gut. So welcome back to the show, Dean. And we were talking about screening. And you had just told us that from age 45 or so, you said to roughly 75, we look at scope. So now the question is, does everybody need a scope? How often do they need a scope? And is there another way or ways of checking for colorectal cancer without having to go into hospital and be scoped? There's one point which I forgot to make earlier on, is that colorectal cancer is a preventable condition. And if you screen appropriately, nobody needs to get colorectal cancer. And if you think about it, compared to a mammogram for breast cancer, generally a mammogram for breast cancer will find an early cancer. 
Whereas a colonoscopy for colorectal cancer or some sort of screening can actually prevent it before it turns cancerous. So we consider colorectal cancer to be preventable. There are a few ways we can screen for colorectal cancer. Now, whenever we talk about some uh, the concept of screening, it's always on a population level because you're taking people without symptoms. It's very important that all of this discussion we're having now is about people who have got no symptoms. If people have symptoms, if they've got abdominal pain, a change in bowel habits, weight loss, anemia, all those things are symptoms and those need to be investigated on their own merits. Now we're talking about somebody who has no symptoms and is totally well. And that's the majority of the population. So all of these tests have, all these screening tests have got some potential for complications and some sort of cost involved. So we have to be mindful of that to do things appropriately. Now, there are a few broad categories of how we do screening. One is if you've got something nasty somewhere in the gut that is potentially cancerous or precancerous, the cells there are quite fragile. So what you could do is do a stool test to look for abnormal DNA in the stool or any blood in the stool. Because if there's anything nasty in the gut, it will it will bleed a little bit. One of the tests we do is something called a FIT test, fecal immunochemical test, which is a very sensitive test to look for blood in the gut. And it's important because let's say you have, you know, some meat or some liver that's got a bit of blood in, you know, from just because, you know, you're eating animal protein. You don't want it to be positive from eating something like that. So you want it to detect, you know, human blood. Um, so you do these stool tests to look for blood. So from, on a population level, what you could do or what you perhaps should do is do a fecal test for abnormal, looking for any blood in there every year from age 45, okay? Just so that you know, the screening age used to be 50, but the American College of Gastroenterology and various other guideline bodies dropped the age from 50 down to 45 because we've seen colorectal cancer in younger and younger people for reasons that aren't entirely clear to us. So we believe screening should start at at 45. So doing an annual fecal occult blood or a test for blood in the gut is the minimum that you should probably do it's a cheap test to do. Most medical aids will cover it on an outpatient basis. Um, a family physician can request these tests quite happily. And if it is done and if it's negative, you can be reassured. If it comes back positive, then it does need to be followed by a colonoscopy. Now, so, so just to understand you, at that point, so so the sensitivity of an occult fecal test, so for 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 just in simple language, for that's checking a stool sample for blood is pretty good. In other words, it is good enough that it can replace a colonoscopy. So the quality of these tests now is so good that it's not in any in any. Um, way, shape, or form, a second best. So, in other words, I mean, the, the logical inference I'm making from that is that when someone has a tumor in their colon, that they will inevitably get blood from that tumor, microscopic blood, but they, they, it, it will bleed. With any test that you do, even a colonoscopy, it's possible to miss things. But the sensitivity of this sort of test is sort of 99. 8%. So yes, some things will be missed. 
But the chances of missing something are so low and the chances of it missing something are similar to the chances of missing something with the colonoscopy. So it is still a good test to do. The problem with the stool test is, look, it's no fun to do these tests. You know, you're dealing with, with poo and it's a bit messy yeah. and it's not very dignified or fun or that sort of thing. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that it does need to be done annually. And also, I think the other problem with it, and if, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but is that the specificity of it is not wonderful, which means for the non-medical among us that you will get other causes of blood in that stool. I would imagine that people who have hemorrhoids and, you know, just so, trauma would do the same thing. Yeah, but the, the quality of the tests now is better and better, so the specificity is improving. And the truth is, if it comes back positive, and you do the colonoscopy and the colonoscopy is negative, how wonderful. But you, 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 if you say somebody's clear that the test is negative, you want to be sure they're clear. And if you call a few people positive by mistake and check them out and they're not actually positive, how wonderful is that? Absolutely. But interestingly, from the GP perspective, I often see patients who have, I mean, hemorrhoids is probably the most common bottom half of the gut type of pathology that we see. And it's often a case of trying to differentiate those kind of patients from patients who we're actually concerned about what's going on in the rectum or in the colon. So even in patients with bleeding hemorrhoids, if they have a negative test for occult blood, that is very good to exclude colorectal cancer. There was a massive study that was just published from the UK recently called the NASFIT study, which showed even in patients who give a history of bleeding hemorrhoids or that sort of stuff, if the stool test is negative, you can reassure a patient. And the truth is, if we had free access to colonoscopy without any, you know, logistic or human resources constraints, you know, there are not that many people in the country overall population-wide who are able to do good colonoscopy. So that's why you have to ration the resources, you know, fairly carefully and see who needs what done. And, you know, I suppose also with uh, with our times, there's for many of these things, there's fairly hefty co-payments for the patients. So you you can do a lot for a patient that's fairly cheap. And I know, for instance, uh, with Discovery Health, if a patient goes for a colonoscopy and they've had a positive fecal occult blood test, the co-payments will be refunded to the patient. So, mm. you know, if you follow the rules, it, it, it doesn't become unaffordable to the patient. We're speaking to Dr. Dean Lutrin, surgical gastroenterologist who has recently gone to live in Israel, speaking to us live from Israel about colorectal cancer. This part of the show today, we're talking about this important issue about screening and and who to screen and how to screen them. So, so Dean, if we go back to talking about a patient in general who's older than 45 years old, you're saying that their first point of call really should do, it sounds like should be to do an occult blood test, so send in the stool. And then I know that the guidelines, though, have been certainly in the past to do a five-yearly colonoscopy anyway. A fecal occult blood test is perfectly good, Okay. But the gold standard still remains a colonoscopy, okay? I think, um, and the guidelines for colonoscopy are that a person who has average risk, who has a colonoscopy, they should start at age 45. And the, the guidelines state at the moment that people should have it once every 10 years from age 45. Now, certainly there are many people who believe, specifically in the Jewish population, because of potentially higher risk factors, just, you know, hereditary things, to do it every five years. 
That is if the colonoscopy is negative. If any polyps are found, precancerous growths, and are removed, it's very important. The other reason why colonoscopy is often better than the fecal testing is see a polyp, you can actually remove it at the same time. The vast majority of polyps, especially pretty much all polyps that are smaller than two centimeters and even polyps that are larger, polyp means a precancerous growth, can be removed safely at the time of the colonoscopy. So you can see a potential problem and remove it at the same at the same time. So you can deal with it. So the guidelines say once every decade, but certainly in a, in our community, often I'll say to patients, you know, to people rather have it every every five years if it is completely normal, and then go to seventy five or you know maybe a little bit older than that if you really are are in good condition. And the most important thing, which is certainly something I was very involved in with the university and training, is that if a doctor tells a patient that their colonoscopy was negative. You've got to be sure that the colonoscopy was negative, that you don't falsely reassure the patient. And there is the possibility that you miss a small polyp or even a small cancer because, you know, people have to drink that uh, bowel prep to clean out all the stools from the bowel. And sometimes there could be a small little uh, pocket of stool left somewhere in the bowel covering a little cancer and you could you could miss it. So the most important thing about colonoscopy is to actually do good colonoscopy so that when you tell a patient they're negative, that they are negative and that's a true situation. Or if you say to the patient, look, the quality of the bowel preparation, the stuff you took to drink didn't really clean you out well. I think waiting another five years is maybe a bit too long because there could have been something small that I missed. Let's rather do it in three years' time or something like that. But generally, if a person's bowel is very clean, the official guidelines say, once a decade, but, you know, if you're going to err on the side of caution and maybe from genetics in the Ashkenazi Jewish community in Joburg doing it every five years, that would be reasonable. That would be completely reasonable to do it every five years as well. We're going to take a short break, but just what we'll be coming back to is there's a bug called Helicobacter pylori, which is a bacteria that lives in people's guts that most people don't know anything about. And yet so often as doctors, we see the need to have it eradicated because it can be problematic. When I come back to Dr. Lutron, we're going to ask him a bit about that. Um, focus on, you know, that, that is a cause of disease. Back with you now. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm talking to Dr. Dean Lutron, surgical gastroenterologist from Wits University, Donald Gordon and Nara Nana in Israel. And he's teaching us all about colorectal cancer prevention. And we're going to talk about how, what to do about it as well. So Dean, I've brought up now about something called H. pylori. Can you tell the listeners a bit about what that is and what relevance it is? Okay. So Helicobacter pylori is a bug that lives in about half the world's population stomach. And what this bug does is it, um, eats away at the line, it produces an enzyme that eats away at the lining of the stomach and puts you, puts a person at risk for ulcers in their stomach because the acid in your stomach can, can injure the stomach. And it also is a potential risk factor for cancer of the stomach, gastric cancer. And Helicobacter pylori can cause a whole range of symptoms. It can cause anemia. It can cause nausea, um, a bit of like 
non-specific abdominal pain, et cetera, et cetera. It does not appear to be a specific risk factor for colorectal cancer. So it's more for, for, for gastric cancer that it's a risk factor, but it can cause a whole constellation of, of symptoms and, um, which really can be totally, you know, difficult to interpret. And generally what, what, what we can do is if you're carrying this bug in your gut, um, when you, you can actually do a stool test for this bug that if it's in your gut, and often when we're sending a patient for a fecal, uh, occult blood test or one of those tests, we will also do a test for Helicobacter pylori because often patients have got minor non-specific symptoms. And if they've got Helicobacter pylori, we need to give a course of antibiotics to actually kill this bug. The problem is it's a very difficult bug to kill, and we give a two-week course of antibiotics to patients, and the antibiotics only eradicate the helicobacter pylori in about 70% of these patients. So patients come with some vague symptoms. You give them horrible antibiotics, and it works 70% of the time. Of the group it doesn't work in, there's second and third line antibiotic treatments, but a lot of people who actually have helicobacter pylori have no symptoms at all, and it seems like the the virulence of the bug in South Africa doesn't cause as much gastric cancer as it causes elsewhere in the world. But it's very important what we believe as, as gastroenterologists to test and treat everybody because it can cause a lot of non-specific symptoms that are worth treating. So I'm still not 100% clear, and, and this is from my years in, in medicine, as to why we don't put everybody through a first-line treatment of Helicobacter pylori treatment anyway. I mean, you, you rightly said that they're not always lovely antibiotics. We know that antibiotics have got side effects, but certainly the cost of using for the listeners amoxicillin and clarithromycin for two weeks, if it treats 70% of the population, I would think that, and especially that Helicobacter pylori is not always that easy to pick up, I would think that we should give everybody in our community one course of those antibiotics and, you know, because the gain is bigger than the cost. Is that, now obviously that's incorrect. Why? Studies have been done throughout actually South Africa at Barra, at uh, Johannesburg Hospital, uh, et cetera, et cetera, about what is the, the baseline incidence of helicobacter pylori? What a percentage of our patients actually carry it? And it is a significant minority. Um, I can't tell you the exact percentage in the Jewish community, but it's probably amongst the patients we have been involved in no more than 10 or 20%. So to give nasty antibiotics to 8 out of 10 people, I can't give you specific numbers, but that would be a thumb suck, is really overkill and, and can cause problems. So to, to treat Helicobacter pylori in our community where the background incidence is fairly low is probably overkill. And, and, you know, and the test is not too difficult to do. And once again, you can do the tests either with stool testing or with a scope. You know, my feeling is that if a patient's coming for a scope or something or other, especially of the a colonoscopy, to tack on a gastroscopy at the same time, and then you can take a biopsy for the helicobacter pylori seems to make a lot of sense if they're coming to, to a scope room anyway. That, I think that's a very big take-home point. And also the fact that, you know, you've got to make sure that the 
advantages are, are worth it, so to speak. And it doesn't seem like in that percentage it is. Um, before we take a little break, can we just touch on, on, on and I might cut you in the middle of this because I know it's quite a, you could give an hour lecture on this, but you spent a lot of your time in Joburg treating patients with colorectal cancer, just to revisit that topic. Is, is this a treatable cancer? So say someone's missed the boat and they go for a scot and they found they have that cancer. What's in it for them then? So the overall survival of colorectal cancer of all patients is around 50% at five years, which is a fantastic statistic. If we compare it, for instance, to pancreatic cancer, which is like, I don't know, 1% or 2% at five years, it's a great statistic. Of patients with early disease, our cure rates are well over 90%. Of patients with advanced disease, even disease that spread to other organs like the liver or the lungs, we can cure a significant number of these patients. And the advances in the oncology treatments and uh, what we're able to offer our patients at the moment are mind-boggling. And for many patients, even patients with advanced colorectal cancer, we may not be able to press erase, but we can press pause for a very, very long time. I always tell my patients is that I want you to be optimistic that you're going to be okay. This is not a death sentence. Obviously, for some people, it's a very, it's a very big deal and um, patients still do succumb to it. But overall, it's something that really is for a patient, something that is treatable and there is real cause for hope if somebody has colorectal cancer. Great. Um, we're going to come back to that point just after the last break with Dr. Lutron. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to the last part of our show today for Discare Medical Mondays. I'm talking to Dr. Dean Lutrin, and we've been discussing colorectal cancer and its ins and outs, scoping, and who should and shouldn't worry about this very important entity. And Dean was talking to us now a little bit about someone who has actually been diagnosed with colorectal cancer. What, what does it mean for them? And he spoke a lot about the success rates in treating them. How do you treat them? Do you know what, 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 what's done and you know, what are the messages to, for the public to know? So I think the, the first thing is, is that assuming it's not an emergency, that this, this isn't bleeding or causing an obstruction, there's time. And um, sometimes we've actually spent up to two months getting a patient ready for an operation of some sort. If a person has a bad heart or bad lungs or bad kidneys, you know, all those things we've got, We've got time to sort those out. But generally, we want to stage the patient. So if a colorectal cancer is diagnosed on a, on a scope uh, and biopsies confirm it's a cancer, we want to do some staging. So you want to know how big the actual tumor is itself and if it's spread elsewhere. And often we'll do um, a CAT scan to look at that, I think as a minimum. Uh, and often if it's in the rectal area, to do an MRI. And I think all these cancers should be treated in a team environment with a, a, a surgeon involved, a radiation oncologist, specifically with rectal cancer, and a medical oncologist. And quite frequently in today's day and age, surgery is actually the last thing we do. Often patients will be sent for chemotherapy first for three or six months to shrink things down. So Often it's a decision about um, what's the best sequencing of treatments for this patient. And there's this whole thrust in oncology to try and give chemo before surgery rather than after surgery. So, you know, I think to have your, you know, somebody's diagnosed, to have it discussed at some sort of 
tumor board where there are a number of different physicians discussing things. And often patients are very anxious. Book me for an operation as soon as possible. And I tell my patients it's more important to make the right decision than a quick decision. And these things don't spread overnight. So the treatment options, look, the surgery is big surgery, and an operation is still the mainstay of the treatment. And the, the operations can be done now today with all sorts of fancy tools, you know, minimally invasive surgery, et cetera, and patients can have an operation and be up on their feet and driving within, you know, 10 or 14 days after the sort of mm-hmm. surgery. So it really is quite magical what 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 um, surgery is able to offer patients today. The surgery is still the main thing, but the, the surgery carries with it real risks. And whenever you're cutting out bits and pieces of intestine and joining it back together, it always carries with, with the risk of poor healing and then having feces leaking in the abdomen, which can be a life-threatening emergency. Um, uh, and then obviously that can entail sometimes needing to have a colostomy bag where you pass stool into a bag, you know, out through the intestine that a hole is made in the abdominal wall and you poo into a bag, which is also no fun. But the truth is you can do everything except poo sitting on the toilets. So people can live with it quite normally, but the the risks associated with the surgery are, are not insubstantial. And even in very good hands, the complications happen. And the best, the more prepared the patient is going into the surgery, both psychologically and medically, the better things go for the patient. So we're getting to the end of our show, but... I'm hearing some really important messages here today. One of which is that this this part of our health is about proactive surveillance, which I mean, in just to translate to simple mindset, is really looking forward in your life and trying to, even if you have no symptoms and you're 50 year old and you've never had your gut screened, this is the time to speak to your GP. Or, or, or I know, for example, you said Discovery Health has got a surveillance program now, a screening program, and really to just at bare minimum do a stool sample and, and otherwise go and see your GP and at, at best do, do a scope every few years. But I'm also hearing about the fact that, you know, for people who are unfortunately in a situation where they do have pathology and they have been picked up with serious disease, this is about not panicking, about getting into the right, the best state that you can be in and then really taking it on with a positive mindset and, and, and good surgical skills as a team. Um, you know, Dean, I could actually talk to you the whole day about lots of other medical things. We chose this topic today, but we really could do this more regularly. But I know we're almost out of time here, but just just in the last moment, um, any final messages from you for our, our community in terms of, of, of how to, you know, keep this in perspective? So I think firstly is that really everyone should should do some sort of screening, however they choose to do it, whether it's a, a fecal blood test or a colonoscopy. And the other thing is I've really traveled around the world and seen the, the best and brightest people with colorectal cancer care. And the care that we have in Joburg is equal to anything else anywhere in the world. And, um, and you know, we have really good people doing good medicine and practicing world-leading stuff. And the other thing is specifically for colorectal cancer, it's a common disease, and the rules of how you treat it are very clear. It's not a thumb sucker. It's not difficult. This is a common disease. And um, the benefit of that is the patients can be the beneficiaries of, good research that's been done, 
good scientific basis. And if you follow the rules, really the majority of the patients have great outcomes. Amazing. Thanks so much for your time, Dean. Thanks for being with us today. It's so great to chat to you. It's Dr. Dean Nutrin, uh, a specialist from Donald Gordon, who many of us know personally, but also have heard of at least professionally, who now lives in Israel. And he's embarking on the next step of his of his really illustrious career as a colorectal surgeon and soon to be practicing actively in Israel, just having my idea. Dean, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you for having me and for hosting me on the show.